You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger. Hey, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light. I am J.D. Rieger. It's good to be back at it after a week off. I hope that you all had a good or at least tolerable holiday weekend. My guest, the talented musician and songwriter Garrison Starr, is about to embark on a run of tour dates to celebrate the 25th anniversary of her debut album, 18 Over Me. That tour hits Memphis on Friday, June 17th at Crosstown Theater. For info on that show, other dates, or to get tickets, visit garrisonstar.com. I have to say it was absolutely an honor and privilege for me to get to talk to her a couple of weeks ago, and I'm really happy to get to share this now. Here's my conversation with Garrison Star. Garrison, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, JD, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I think where I want to start is how did you get into music? Okay. Well, you know, what's interesting is that I have always, I mean, since I was little, I was always into music in some way. I I wanted to be a drummer at first, but um, my mom said, no daughter of mine is going to be a drummer. So I chose guitar and then I got put in piano lessons, (laughs) which I actually wish that I had um, stuck with because piano is a great instrument to start to start playing, you know, to, to understand theory and just to kind of go from other instruments from piano, I think is piano is a pretty cool way to start, but I didn't like to practice. So I ended up just learning to play guitar by ear. And, and that's kind of where I started. Um, I I learned at summer camp, some chords and a few songs. I think the first song I learned was blowing the wind. And, um, so I, you know, guitar was just something that I could do. I picked it up and it made sense to me in a way that like the piano didn't make sense and seemed kind of daunting. And, um, I don't know, it seemed like a pain in the ass, whereas guitar was just kind of easy and I loved it. And I started writing songs immediately. And I think just kind of keeping with the theme of what we were talking about before in terms of Harding and ECS and just being in that really strict religious fold, you know, I think knowing what I knew about myself and what I was discovering about myself. I think I really started writing songs to be able to talk about the things that I couldn't talk about in real life. You know, what was your mechanism for music discovery at that time? Because I don't think that, uh, 96 X or alternative rock radio existed in Memphis. How were you discovering uh, the things that you were, I guess, emulating? God, that's a great question. You know, probably MTV, to be honest, if I think about it, you know, I mean, I listened to FM 100 and, you know, I just kind of, my dad had a lot of old records that I would listen to, like old Beatles records and Beatles singles, a lot of the Stones and Cream and the Yardbirds and just kind of whatever he was listening to. And then I picked up a lot of stuff, like I said, from MTV, but also my aunt, funny enough, my mom's sister, um, excuse me, she used to make mixtapes for me. And she would just take all their old records and tapes and make me these mixtapes of everything from Carla Bonoff to Bonnie Raitt to Bruce Springsteen to Hart to, 
you know, um, Burt Bacharach, you know, when I think about it, you know, I, I did kind of learn a lot about music from my own family. You know, my mom loved Burt Bacharach and she also loved, um, Dionne Warwick. And she really loved to play the piano when I was growing up. She wasn't great at it, but she did love to play. So, so, you know, um, I think mainly those sources, um, and then, you know, whatever my friends were listening to and whatever I found, um, you know, I found the Indigo Girls and, and people like Tori Amos who were singing about things that I was going through, you know, and I probably learned about those from other friends of mine who were also searching and struggling. Yeah, for sure. Uh, my friends definitely played a role in my uh, discovering music outside of what my parents were into. Um, you said your mom vetoed the drums, but you did end up playing drums in a band, right? I did. I ended up playing drums. I mean, you know, there was no kick drum. It was just snare, ride, and uh, yeah, it was just snare and ride, really. But I did. I played um, drums with my friend Nielsen Hubbard in Spoon, and then they ended up having to change their name to This Living Hand because of the Spoon, the Texas Spoon, Texas Band. But, um, but yeah, we traveled all around and played some of the worst places like some of the worst like venues I've ever been to in my life, like the Chucker in, um, oh God, in Mobile. No, was it Mobile? I don't remember. There was this club called the Chucker and it was somewhere like in a random, like some random small town in the South, just wherever we could get gigs. We would literally play gigs to no people. I mean, there would be nobody there, not one single person, but we loved it. How did you meet Nielsen? I met Nielsen through Young Life, funny enough. Um, my friend uh, Helena Lamb was really good friends with Nielsen at Ole Miss, and they did Young Life stuff together and RUF stuff together, and that's how I met That's how I met Nielsen. And he ended up being someone that you have collaborated with you know, many times over the years. What about his vibe clicks with you? You know, it's funny because Nielsen feels like another part of me he, he feels like, I mean, he just, he feels like another part of me. You know, I love, first of all, Nielsen is an unapologetic person. You know, he believes what he believes. He thinks what he thinks. He makes what he makes. And he really doesn't care what anybody else thinks about it. He really doesn't get any of his validation from outside of himself. You know, he's, he just is a, a strong staunch believer of what he believes in. He's so convicted. And I, I've always loved that about him. You know, he never once wavered from the music that he was making in college that like, quite honestly, nobody liked, you know, not because he wasn't writing some great songs, but just because it wasn't what everybody else was doing at all Miss, you know, nobody really got it. You know what I mean? But he never wavered from it. He never tried to be anything else. He never tried to do anything else. And, and I think when I am with Nielsen, it just, the, that part of me becomes stronger. The convicted, you know, believer in myself becomes stronger, if that makes sense. Because of, you know, because of his strength and because of his, you know, his artistry that he just, you know, that's what it is for him. It's about the art. It's not about the artist. And I think that's, I think that's right. You know what I mean? I think Nielsen, one of the things that makes him a great producer and a great collaborator is that he, 
sees the bigger picture and he also brings out the best in the artist because he is about what's real, you know, not about what might sell better or what people might like better. He's about bringing out the essence of who you are and what you have to say. And I need that, you know, I need to be um, encouraged to stay in my lane, you know, because I think especially nowadays, it's really hard to stay on your path and not be distracted, you know, and not be constantly comparing yourself to what other people are doing or trying to keep up with, with the trends, you know, trying to keep up with the algorithms and things like that. I just, that's not inspiring to me. And I can't imagine it's that inspiring to a lot of artists, but, you know, I think it's really important to have people in your life who remind you of who you really are. And Nielsen has always been that for me as well as an incredible friend. I'm a little fuzzy on the timeline, but I know after you do the OMS thing, at some point you decide to leave the South. What what made you want to get out? Well, I just didn't feel like I belonged, you know? I mean, as much as I love being from the South, and I always loved Memphis. I, I look back at my time in Memphis as the best time. You know, that was, you know, the time after I left Ole Miss and I lived in Memphis and really was starting out in my career, those were some of the best times in my life. You know, I made some incredible friends and I had some incredible experiences. But um, to be totally honest, I just never felt accepted, like in the Christian, on the, in, the, in the evangelical Christian community. And that was such a big part of my upbringing. You know, that conservative, the conservative politics and the conservative Christian, um, it's just so, it's so prevalent you know, it's so prevalent there. Um, and I was so traumatized that I think when I came to L.A. and I saw that I could be anonymous here, not anonymous in terms of like people knowing my name, but anonymous in that nobody cares what you're doing. Nobody cares, you know, what church you go to. Nobody cares what you believe. You know what I mean? Nobody you can be whoever and whatever you want to be out here and in you know, in a big, a bigger city like this and in a state like California that has so many protections for its citizens and, and offers so much more in terms of, you know, um, I don't know, just a, a better lifestyle, you know, where I can be free to explore and, and be who I want to be. I just didn't feel like I could do that where I was at the time, you know, um, I'd gotten that big record deal and, I have, was having such an identity crisis, and it, it's so funny because so many of the same people who really treated me terribly in college and, and outed me and basically ran me out of town on a rail, you know, some of those people were coming to my shows and acting like nothing had ever happened. And I think I just needed a new start. I needed to get away from my parents. I needed to get away from from um, from the trauma that I'd gone through at Ole Miss you know, and I needed to start fresh. And I knew I could do that in LA. And immediately when I got here, I just felt more free than I'd ever felt in my life. You know, and again, with great respect for where I come from and knowing that I wouldn't be the person I am today without my life being exactly as it is, I wouldn't change any of it. But I just don't know if I could, I don't know if I could ever live in the South again after what I went through. Was there a particular opportunity that you moved out there to pursue or was it just purely to get out? Well, you know, I had signed that deal with, with Geffen and I'd been 
I, you know, I signed the deal with Geffen in 97 and I was on the road so much. And Nielsen had just been signed to a label out here, that E Pluribus Unum label that, that, uh, Adam Duritz from the Counting Crows had started. And, you know, he was coming out here a lot and we were, you know, our manager moved out here. And so we were just spending a lot of time in LA. Oh, and my friend Bradford Cobb, who manages Katy Perry, he's from Tunica, Mississippi. Bradford was moving out to LA and it just seemed like a good opportunity. It seemed like the right thing to take the opportunity to, to put my stuff in his moving truck and just, you know, go see what was out there. So you were signed to this Geffen deal before the move. I'm just curious, how did you attract their interest from Memphis? You know what's so funny, JD? This is the mo- this is why I believe in magic and this is why I believe in, you know, collaboration with the universe and I believe that everybody has a purpose in their life, you know, and I believe that I am on a path and, you know, um, and I'm on the path I'm meant to be because I had this manager, uh, Mark Roberts, we called him fish and fish (laughs) managed this record store in Oxford at the time called gin alley. And, you know, that was back in the day. You remember when, um, there were record, like physical record stores, you said you work at Shangri-La sometimes, um, you know, so gin alley, uh, you know, Mark worked there, Fish worked there, and he was dealing with all of the sales reps from the labels that were getting, you know, that were getting their records, the physical records into the physical stores. And so Fish struck up a conversation. I mean, he, you know, he was a people person and he struck up a, a relationship with this guy, Ray Farrell, who was in sales at Geffen at the time. And he said, Hey, I'm managing this artist. And she just made this EP and there's this song called superhero that I think is a hit song. And I wondered if I could send it to you. So Ray's like, yeah, send it along. So fish sent, um, my EP called stupid girl that had the original version of superhero on it. That was kind of like, it was, it was funny. It had this like ska guitar part. It was, it was kind of a funny, it was a cool, I mean, it was a cool version, but it's definitely different than, you know, the one that ended up being recorded for the, for the Geffen record. But anyway, long story short, he sent him a copy of the EP and Ray kind of flipped out about the song and he played it for everybody at Geffen and they all flipped out too. So he got on a plane and he came to see me play, um, Gosh, I can't remember where I was playing. Someplace that was near Newbies. Maybe it was called the Alley or something. I can't remember. It was someplace that was right down the street from Newbies. And I was playing and Ray came out and that was that. I mean, he came out and I just kind of got signed on the spot. I went to, I think within like a week or two of, of Ray coming to see me and the band play, um, I was flown out to LA to meet with everybody at Geffen and we signed a deal. It was kind of a, it was kind of crazy actually. I was working for Ardent Records at the time. You know, they had that that record label that was primarily a Christian label and uh I was working I was working there. So so yeah, it was just kind of it was meant to be. Of course we're talking because it's the 25th anniversary of that album uh, 18 over me. I don't know if you can hear my cat meowing in the background. Oh, what's your cat's name? Uh well, I have two, but this one's name is Max and he's he's very hungry. Oh, Max. Yes, this year is the 25th anniversary of 18 Over Me. It came out in September of 97. So, so yeah, 25 years ago, dude. How do you feel like when you hear that record now, when you listen to it, when you revisit that material with the band, what are the feelings uh, that it triggers? Well, it's interesting because at different times in my life, it's triggered different things. Like, there was definitely a time up until 
not too long ago, actually, that I really couldn't listen to that record. Um, my voice is so young and it was so raw. And I, I know how hurt and angry I was at the time. And it's for a long time, it was really hard for me to listen to. And then, you know, after really working on letting go of some of the baggage from that time and working through some of the sadness and the pain surrounding those memories and, um, and really working on forgiving what happened and forgiving, you know, forgiving myself for not being strong enough to, to defend myself as a child, you know, uh, for not having all the tools to be able to move through that time period more gracefully. You know, I made a lot of mistakes because of my own bitterness and anger, um, after all the trauma that I experienced in the evangelical Christian community, you know, I really made a lot of mistakes in my own career because I didn't have the tools or the, the, you know, the, the mental capacity to really work through all of, all of those feelings at that time. So, you know, within the last year or two, I've been revisiting the record via Patreon. Cause I have a, you know, I'm, I'm on Patreon and I do some fun exclusive stuff for my fans on Patreon. And I was going through my catalog and one of the, you know, one of the shows that I did one month was I did, I, I played 18 over me all the way through. And that was what the show was for that month. And I think as I've been revisiting the songs where I am now, it's interesting to me because the songs really, they still hold up. You know, there's some of them that, you know, I would not ever really play again because I don't, you know, there's a couple of them that don't resonate as much with me anymore. Um, but most of them still resonate, you know, as songs. And I think what means the most to me is seeing, um, and what, what I'm most excited about, to be honest, especially bringing the show to Memphis with the full band, um, and recording it for the live record. Uh, I think the thing that I'm most excited about is getting to share this music with people who love it so much. I know this record meant a lot to a lot of people. I know it's helped a lot of people through some pain and trauma. And for that, uh, I'm, I'm grateful that I could connect with people on that level and, and come back and, and sing these songs in Memphis where it all started, where I know, you know, where I know it's going to resonate with the people who are there, you know? So that's what it means to me now. And I made something that meant a lot to a lot of people. And that's, that's something that I understand now. And I'm truly just grateful, grateful to be able to, to share again, you know? What do you remember about making the record? Ugh. well, I can be honest with you in that the, making the record was not a great experience. It lasted way too long. It took like six months or so to make it. Um, Dennis Herring, who produced the record, was not, I mean, he's, he was kind of an asshole and he was hard to work with. He was really critical and uh, very full of himself. Um, I loved tracking at Kingsway in New Orleans. That was probably my favorite part of the whole process of being able to record and go out. I remember one night we went out with Daniel and to some, you know, to some little bar down the street from Kingsway. And I got to, to hang out with him and have a couple of drinks. And I think at the time I didn't really, um, I didn't really appreciate how cool that experience was, but I can look back on it now and, and think about how awesome that was to get to sit across from him and just hang out. 
and, uh, you know, record those basic tracks at Kingsway with Bob Roop, who used to play bass with Cracker, and the great Craig Cramp, who was playing drums. And we had the late, great Jay Bennett was playing guitar. You know, we just we had such a an awesome group of musicians who are so talented who participated um, in that record. And also, you know, I got to I got to sing with Vicki Peterson. She's my rock and roll hero of all time, the lead guitar player for the Bangles. She came and sang background vocals on Passing, which Dennis didn't want to have happen. He was like, she's a terrible singer. She's not doing it. I'm like, she's my rock and roll hero. She's a great singer. It's my record. She's singing on it. So I'm glad I pushed for that because, you know, what a special you know, what a special memory to be sitting in Oxford in her Airbnb eating like vegetarian food, talking about being a vegetarian, which is something I just didn't even, you know, that didn't even know at the time. And also just getting to like talk to this person who I had just idolized for years and years and find out that she's lovely and so awesome. And um, so, you know, it was hard working with Dennis for sure, but a lot of the experiences that we had, most everyone who was working on the record was awesome. And we got to bring in so many great people, you know, just to get to work with Ken Coomer and, you know, um, Jay Bennett was amazing, you know, and that, you know, being, being signed to Geffen gave me the, the opportunity to reach some of those people, you know, what did Jay do on the record? Uh, I didn't know he was on the record. I was actually a band I was in was actually on a label with Jay at the end of his life. So I'm 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 very curious about what his his role was. Well, dude, he played electric on Passing. That's him playing the guitar solo on Passing. And you know what's funny about it is that like, and and let me just say, as much as Dennis annoyed me through that whole process, Dennis is one of the most talented guitar players. I mean, he really is a talented musician. Um, he was like, you know what, Jay why don't you play it left-handed? Let's just, let's just like get this, the wackiest solo. Let's just get the wackiest solo we can get. Just see what you do. If you play it left-handed, Jay was like, this is ridiculous. I can't play left-handed. So the solo in passing is Jay Bennett dicking around playing left-handed. That's the solo. That's crazy. Unbelievable. One of the, one of my favorite like solos probably of all time, much less on one of my records. You know what I mean? So we did have a lot of fun. I did have a lot of fun getting to hang with those dudes. I actually listened to the record this morning before we did this, and I was struck by how much the record sounds like the 90s, especially compared to the rest of your catalog. Doesn't it? I know. I know. It does. It does sound like the 90s. It was very, um, it's very rock and roll, you know? Um, I played a lot of electric guitar on that record, and, you know, I love that. But it was... You know, it definitely is a moment in time. You know, it was a moment in time for sure. Sonically, you know, for sure. Yeah. And of course, Superhero is is a big hit. I remember hearing it on the radio like constantly. Uh, 97 was the year I graduated high school. So I remember hearing it driving to school and stuff. How does having a breakthrough song like that change your life? Gosh, man. Um it's funny because like when I look back at it, like my experience with that song as an artist is so different because, you know, that song was, well, first of all, it was incredible to have a song that was resonating with so many people. I remember one time I played a festival and I remember Third Eye Blind was also on the festival and I was playing this 
the state, this big stage. And I looked out and there was a, there was a, a deaf person who was signing the work, like signing and lip syncing superhero, like on the front row, I think they were in a wheelchair and they were signing the song. And I remember I started crying. I like, couldn't get through the, la- the, the chorus that I was in from seeing that, you know, it was such a powerful, it was so powerful, you know, to have a song like that, that, like I said, connected with so many people and it's, you know, it's the biggest song I've ever had, you know, it's the most connected song I think I've ever had. Um, and funny that it was at such a terrible time in my life, but it's such a triumphant song, you know? Um, but yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was an amazing time. It was also a confusing time because I was really sad and I was hurt and very unresolved about all of the things that were happening, like on the ground, you know what I mean? But here I was out there touring. I mean, at that time I was touring like probably eight to nine months out of the year. I was always on the road, you know? Um, and, and that's a crazy, that's a crazy life. I mean, that's a crazy place to be, to not really know, especially like I said, where my, where my, you know, the grounding was so unsteady for me. I didn't have like a solid home where everything was peaceful and, you know, and I, and I felt safe and accepted. You know what I mean? I was just, everything was very much in flux always. And then, you know, the song was doing so well. And then the merger happened with Universal, Interscope, Geffen, all that stuff was happening. So a lot of the momentum kind of came to a halt. You know what I mean? So that was tough because we were having a good run with Superhero. But at the end of the day, like I said, I think the the coolest thing about it was just when I look back on it, is just how much that song and that record connected with people. You know, it's a cool feeling. I can imagine that it's hard for you to play a show and not play that song. Do you ever or have you ever gotten to a place where you were tired of it? Well, you know, I didn't play that song for a long time. And I think, I think in retrospect, that was a mistake. You know, um, I think after I just was so heartbroken for a lot of years, just feeling like, you know, here I was, I went through this traumatic experience. I was, you know, ostracized and basically rejected by my entire friend group. You know what I mean? and just humiliated and made an example of at Ole Miss and ended up leaving in such a, just such a tail between my legs kind of way. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I mean, I don't know how else I could have done it, but it was just a, a shameful, like the whole process was shameful. Right. So here I go walking into this big record deal where everything's going to change. But like, for me, nothing was changing on the inside. You know, you can't will away you know, all of the work that has to be done on the inside to reflect it outward. Does that make sense? For me, I was chasing after something on the outside that could make it better on the inside, but it never happened, you know? So the first, you know, after that process with Geffen and the merger happened and I sort of got thrown into this place, I was back into this place of like, well, what are we going to do with you? You know, you're not really feminine enough, but you're not masculine. So we don't really know what to do with you. You know, so like, I think I've always struggled with finding my place, even though it seemed like, oh, yeah, this is such a great thing. And this is the way it's going to be forever. It's like, am I making sense? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. That making sense because I, I feel like I'm losing my thread a little bit, but I, but I, you know, I just I look back at that time and I, I it was just, it was hard, you know, it was heartbreaking in so many ways, and kind of getting thrown back into the pile for the Interscope stuff was tough, you know. Um, I didn't feel like I was really appreciated for the artist that I was at the time. And I also needed direction that I didn't have. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't really have an A&R person who could, who, who got me and who could say, okay, here's what we need to do. You know, we need to get you in some therapy. We need to get, you know, we need to sit and strategize about what our next move is. You know, I just feel like for so long, I was just kind of jumping from lily pad to lily pad, you know, just kind of surviving if that makes sense. Was there a lot of pressure, whether it was internal or external, to come up with a huge follow-up? Yeah. I mean, I, I knew I left Interscope because I knew I wasn't going to be able to make a record that I wanted to make. I knew that if I was going to stay at Interscope, I was going to have to do what they wanted me to do, and I didn't want to do that. You know, So I asked to be let go, and of course they let me go. Because, yeah, you know, I didn't I don't think they saw me as an artist that they really knew what to do with. And, you know, I I think I needed time to step back and figure out what I wanted to do, what I wanted to say. Um, And. And, yeah, so I took that time and then ended up, you know, writing all those songs for songs from Takeoff to Landing, which was another, you know, is another record that is a fan favorite, you know? Um, I love that record. I think there's too many songs on it, but I do love it. (laughs) Stuck in purgatory, but it feels a lot like hell. Getting hard to tell Am I running from my dreams A family Jesus or myself Well nowhere in this whole wide world Has ever felt like home I can't find any comfort In a God I've never known And the TV just reminds me that I'm still feeling so alone. Mm. So open up the sky and let me out. I want to stare you in the face and ask you how am I supposed to wait a set free How can I believe in something that don't believe in me Well I hear people saying that my heart is full of sin Is there something wrong with me because I'm different than them Oh it's a hell 
just heard Don't Believe in Me from my guest Garrison Starr's 2021 album, Girl I Used to Be. Let's get back to our conversation. I was listening to a, a lot of your catalog actually recently, and uh, Airstreams and Satellites was one that came out in, was that 2005? That sounds about right. That would, that'd be about right. Yeah. A really good record. Um, and there's, interestingly, I, I guess, did did the label want you to re-record Superhero, or is that yes. something you wanted uh, to do? Oh, my gosh. Man, JD, that was the source of, like, that was horrible. I mean, that was so horrible. I mean, I, I remember the producer, Kurt Schneider, who I love. He was great. He and Andrew Williams kind of co-produced it together, but Kurt was really the guy who was in there engineering and playing bass and producing from day to day. But... um. But I remember they heard this, they heard Superhero. And like, I was on Vanguard at the time and Kurt heard Superhero and was like, well, what, when did this come out? I mean, this came out 10 years ago. You know, this is, we, we can re-record this. And I was like, guys, hello, like, that's not, we're not doing that. Like, absolutely not, you know? And I had a manager at the time who just wasn't, I loved him to death. He was such a good friend, but he was not a great manager. And um, he kind of just... He was kind of wishy-washy about the whole thing. And Vanguard was so desperate. Like, they wanted a hit so bad. They were just like, oh, yeah, we're doing this. This will be great. You know, this we're going to do this. This will be awesome. Ten years, <laughs> nobody – I mean, everybody loved that song. We'll just pick it right back up. And it's like – I remember I was just, like, waving the flags and screaming. I was just like, please don't do this. I, this is such a bad idea. And I remember Frank Riley was my booking agent at the time, and he was like, you can't let this happen. You cannot let this happen. You have got to go get in their face and tell them. And I tried and nobody listened to me. And I, I just, you know, that's something I look back at and kind of hate, you know, I hated that we did that. I'd never thought that was the right decision. And I, you know, I hate that I let myself get run over by a bunch of men about it. You know what I mean? Because that is what happened. Ugh. And, uh, I, I hate even hearing that. And yeah, I, 
I didn't want to say it like this, but honestly, when I listened to that re-recording, it almost sounds a little bit like your heart's not fully in it. Yeah, I can understand that because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't. I knew it wasn't going to be good and I knew it wasn't going to be a good look. And, you know, I think I felt like, again, I just felt railroaded, you know, I, I, I said what I said and I didn't get the result I wanted. So, yeah, it's hard to look back at those things. It really is, you know, and for a long time, again, it was just shame on top of shame. You know what I'm saying? Just about my career. And how could you let that happen? How could you, you know, allow this to happen? You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, it was hard. It was hard. I read that at one point you even considered retiring as an artist and just going full behind the scenes songwriter. I tried. I tried it, you know, over the last, like, it's only really been in the last several years that I, um, that I kind of picked it back up again, you know, cause I made that record amateur, um, back in 2012 and put that out, put that out via pledge music, uh, God, which was so hard fulfilling all those orders and all that stuff. What a weird. And then pledge music like that had that huge scandal where they were like taking all the money and not paying the artists and they went belly up. But anyway, I put out that record via um, pledge music. And then after that, I just kind of was like, you know what? I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I don't I don't know where my audience is. I don't know if anybody even cares about what I'm doing now. I don't know what matters. I think Again, for me, the business of the music has always been such a hard, um, oh, it's just so hard. It's always been so hard for me, you know, because I, I think it brings up a lot of old stuff from the past, from, again, from the trauma that I went through in the church, you know. I think that it's sort of, it's a stick that kind of pokes in the wound on both sides. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like that rejection and the shame that I felt in the church, not really feeling like I was worthy of love and acceptance. It's like, well, it's the same thing in the music business. When you have people telling you, we don't know where to put you. We're not sure what you should look like. We can't really talk about you being gay. You know what I'm saying? It's like, there was the same kind of pain happening, you know? And I guess that's because that was my pain that I was carrying around. So I couldn't escape from it. You know what I mean? Were you encouraged in the industry not to come out? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And Geff, I mean, the thing that was frustrating too about those about the Geffen days was that um, you know, I remember my A and R guy at the time was like, We can't have you looking like one of the indigo girls. And, you know, I mean, I knew what he meant, you know what I'm saying? And like, but the indigo girls are one of my favorite bands ever. You know what I mean? And they were and they were very successful. So it's like, well, they're doing something right. You know what I mean? And I think what they were doing right was they were being their authentic selves. You know what I mean? And so, yes, you know, I remember also once that, you know, they didn't want to go to gay press because they didn't want to really talk about that. They weren't sure if that was the right thing, you know, but then when they weren't getting all the love they wanted in the mainstream press, then they wanted to go to the gay press. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. You know what I mean? Like it's either we're doing all of it or we're doing none of it, but you're not going to do this to me now where you told me I can't talk about this. And now you want me to talk about it. Now you want to sell me out in this way. 
You know what I mean? Um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was tough, man. I gotta say, I mean, I've been through some pretty, some pretty tough moments in my career personally, just to, just to, just to get up there and play my songs. You know, it's a lot to go through just to get up there and do the thing, do the thing that I love to do. Was it ultimately a relief to finally publicly come out and say it though? It was a, it was a relief. I mean, it, it sucked the way it happened because it didn't happen on my terms. And, you know, for me, I just kind of always thought like, what difference does it make? I'm just me who cares whether I'm gay or not, but it was so important for other people to know. Um, and yeah, when it, when it finally happened, I guess it was a relief, but it wasn't until several years ago, if I'm being totally honest, till I started to feel completely comfortable in my skin. I've had to work through a lot of shame and a lot of trauma and pain to get to a place where, and also living in California, living in Los Angeles is helpful because I am supported in my community and I am supported in my city. You know, I'm not saying that bigots aren't everywhere, but like obviously in a place as big as LA, in a city like LA, you really can be whoever you want to be. And that's, that's been the biggest saving grace for me is just coming home to a place where I know I'm safe. You know, um, I forgot what I was saying to you before that. I think I got off track. Sorry about that. No, it's all right. What was it that, that brought you back from feeling like you didn't want to do it anymore? Well, I was in all these writing sessions with, with a lot of younger female artists who kept saying things like, let's write a Tom Petty song. And I just, <laughs> I just remember being in those rooms, like as a writer, just as a songwriter and having these young artists not knowing what they wanted to say. And I think at the end of the day, and some of them not being good singers. And I, at the end of the day, I was like, what the fuck? What am I even doing? I am an artist. I know what I want to say. And it was a blessing because I realized in all these sessions where I thought, man, I accumulated some great songs. A lot of those songs were on my last record that came out a year ago called Girl I Used to Be. Um, a lot of those songs were from a lot of these sessions I was in where I thought I was helping this young artist tell their story and, you know, write these songs that they would sing. And as I was going back through all these songs that I'd written with all these artists and all these sessions, I realized these songs weren't being cut, you know? And I think at the end of the, at the end of the day, I realized, oh, wait, these are my songs. Actually, what's been happening is all of these artists and producers have been helping me to tell my story, uh, which is beautiful, you know, because I never used to co-write in the past. And my manager just started setting me up on, on, you know, all these co-writes, you know, let's do stuff for sync. Let's do stuff for other artists. Let's just get you in the room, writing songs with people. And at first I was, I thought it was stupid, but honestly, it's the best thing. It's the smartest thing he could have ever done because it opened me up in so many ways. And it, you know, inspired me again. And it reminded me of who I am, you know, and and actually Nielsen said the coolest thing to me once I was having such a hard time. And he was like, Garrison, nobody can tell you whether you're an artist or not. Nobody. He was like, there's people that work at Baskin Robbins and go home and create some of the most beautiful stuff in the world that no one will ever hear. And it's not about that. You know, whether anybody sees it or hears it or believes in it doesn't matter. 
Do you believe in it? Do you have something to say? Do you have the courage to say it? You're an artist if you say you are. And and it clicked with me. I just thought, man, that's the truth. <laughs> you know, I know that I've been given a gift and I know that I have a voice. I know I have a message and I just want to be a vehicle for that gift, you know? And if if it ever blows up into something huge, great. If it doesn't, well, whatever. I'm learning a lot of great lessons and I'm continuing to grow and, you know, become more of who I'm meant to be, you know? I'm finding that kid in me again, the one that wrote Superhero, the one that wrote Grounded, the one that wrote Ugly and felt all those things, you know, like... I'm finding her again. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, that's one of the coolest things about this 25th anniversary. And the reason why I even wanted to put this little tour together, it's like, I feel like everything's come full circle again. And that kid who was so raw and so honest and so open and so fearless, that kid is still in me. She just needed to be heard. She just needed to be brought back out to the forefront. She needed to be trusted again. Cause she knew what was right the whole time. You know what I mean? She's always known. What's inspiring about hearing you say things like that is, you know, from my perspective, I look up and I see an artist who's done some like huge things that I could only in my mind aspire to, you know, touring with huge artists, Lilith fair, whoever. I mean, th those are huge things. And for you to have the same experiences of, you know, crisis of faith, it's, it's a little comforting. I have to tell you. Good. I hope so. You know, cause it's definitely not, I mean, the biggest thing I've learned in my life and career up to this point is that it's definitely not what anyone says it is. You know what I mean? It is whatever it is for, for you. And like, you know, if I could do one thing differently, I would have just stayed true to myself. You know, I would have just trusted myself more if I could have and just reminded myself, yo, you know what's right. It doesn't matter what all these people are saying. You in your heart know what's right. If you can get quiet, you can get still, just settle down and remember, you know who you are, you know, you do. And so there's been a lot of grieving for me in looking back at, you know, what I, what I am tempted to say was wasted time. I know it's not because at the end of the day, it, it all leads to where I am right now. But, you know, there were just so many times where I let my, my bitterness, my anger and my ego take control of my life, you know, instead of doing what I had always done when I was younger, which was go back to my guitar, go back to the piano, go back to whatever's sitting in front of me and write about it, talk about it, you know, dig into the music because the music has always saved me, always. It was always there for me. You know, when, when I would walk into the Cayo house to eat lunch and I would literally sit down at a table and everybody would get up and walk away because they were giving, quote, giving me tough love till I repented from my sin of being gay. That was their, that was what their pastor had instructed them to do. So when I would sit down at the table, they'd get up and walk off. In those moments where I felt so small, so disgusting, 
so alone and so unloved, the thing that I could do was go back to my dorm room, pick up my guitar and play, you know? That's just and I don't know what shocking I would have, for me to hear. Dude, it, I mean, I've got more stories for you. I mean, it was so bad, JD. It was so sad. It was so lonely. I have never felt that kind of loneliness in my whole life. Yeah, you know? I've, I've experienced the cruelty that those sort of folks are capable of, but that's fairly extraordinary even for what I've seen. <laughs> well, what had happened was um, one of my friends... Her father was a Presbyterian minister and he gathered all of they gathered like a ton of girls up to their house one weekend and like ha, like gathered them together and was like, all right, this is what you have to do. You just ignore them. If they come up to talk to you, me and my girlfriend at the time, if you ignore, you know, if they come up to talk to you, just ignore them. If they come sit down, you get up, walk away. You just ice them out until they repent. So it's like so, you know, at the end of the day, that's why I left, because I'm like, well, this is terrible. You know what I mean? I don't want to I can't. You know, I can't live in an environment like this. Like, what am I trying to prove? I don't want to be in this situation. This is terrible for me, you know? Um, so, yeah, so that's that was a big reason why I moved to Memphis and got my own place. I was just like, I'm out. I got to go, you know? I got I to gotta get out of here. I'm going to die, you know, if I stay here. I can certainly understand the, the bitterness and the anger. How, how do you work your way through that? The therapy? <laughs> yeah, you know, I've been I've I've done a lot of therapy. It's although in my experience with therapy, it's like, you know, therapy's only good when you're committed to getting something out of it. You know, like I went to a ton of different therapists and was not hearing what I wanted to hear. It was only until I was ready to put it to bed and to really deal with, you know, deal with myself in the story, you know? Um and stop pointing my finger at everybody else like it's somebody else's job to to work through it. You know, it's like, look, sometimes when things happen in life, they're not, it's not fair, but it isn't about that. It's like, how do we, how do we take that experience and make it work for us? How do we take that experience and learn what we need to learn? And then, you know, let it go. You know, it's always just been hard for me to let go of it because it's so wrapped up in my career, my identity as an artist, you know, like my name is, is my name, you know, I'm Garrison Starr, the person walking down the street and also the person whose identity is wrapped up in her music career, you know, and I know I'm not the only one. There's tons of artists out there that feel that same stress and that feel the entanglement, especially the world we're living in now where you got to like, you got to have like six different social media profiles and do something different on each one. It's just, it's like playing Twister. It's ridiculous. You know, <laughs> I've realized that at the end of the day, the only thing that will bring me joy from this gift is to find ways to connect with people, you know, period. That's how I have to look at it or I won't ever do anything. You know what I mean? How can I, and you know, for the longest time, I never talked about my story. I didn't talk about my sexuality or my story because I didn't think anybody wanted to hear about it. And then I realized that I was, you know, that if I didn't start talking about it, that I was going to, you know, shrivel up and die. So once I started talking about my experience and, you know, my past and the evangelicalism and all that, it's crazy how many people have come up to me or written to me and said, dude, thank you so much. I have never known how to talk about this, but I've always struggled with this or whatever. And so, you know, and, and I will say, I think that's one good thing about social media in the sense that there are a lot of people 
out there who are sharing themselves in a very authentic way that is encouraging and helpful to other people and is very inspiring, you know? So again, I think it's about the conversation more than what it looks like. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Do you think that, and I I hate to even ask a question like this, but you know, do you think that if you had come along as an artist, say today that you would totally have had different experience, it, completely yep. different career. There's no doubt in my mind. When I came out as an artist and because of my sexuality, there are tons of opportunities that I did not get to take advantage of. There's no doubt. My sexuality held me back in a lot of ways, which isn't my fault. You know, it just is what it is. But I do think if I was, you know, 23 years old having this conversation t- with you right now, I think I'd be in a, a totally different situation. Because I also think in this industry, the longer you've been around, you know, the, the more people think they know you and they know what you're about and they've already heard it and they've seen it. You know what I mean? So it's a constant point of reinvention. And for me, staying in the gratitude about having opportunities to connect. But it's hard. It really is hard mentally, you know? But yes, I think I think it would be different. I definitely remember, you know, just thinking back to listening to like the Rock 103 wake up crew and the terrible Melissa Etheridge jokes that they would make that you would never hear anyone make about an artist yeah. today. Yeah, totally. It's terrible. And not and and she was getting played like crazy on their station. <laughs> you know what I mean? They were playing Melissa Etheridge songs like it was going out of style. I mean, Bring For me sure. some water. Good gosh. They were playing, you know, they were playing all that stuff. But yeah, I don't, it's, yeah, it's tough. And you know, I mean, that, that kind of stuff sticks, man. I mean, you know, you hear somebody, you know, you hear somebody say some of those slurry words, homophobic words. I mean, it, I remember one time I walked into Lafayette's in Oxford when I was still, excuse me, it was right before I left Ole Miss. Like I walked to, into the bathroom and somebody had written on the wall, Garrison Starr is gay. I remember. And I was like, wow, that's, that's what it, that's who I am. I'm gay. <laughs> like of all the things I am, that's who I am. I'm gay. And that's it's worthy like, of, of writing on a bathroom right, wall. Right. Right. But you know, man, and again, you know, I love Memphis and I, if I was ever going to move back to that area, I would only move back to Memphis. I could only see myself living there just because I think Memphis is such an inclusive, Memphis is such a great city and it's such a diverse and inclusive city. It always bugs me that so much is happening in Nashville because I think, you know, as much as I have great friends in Nashville, I think the city of Nashville is extremely douchey. You know, the industry's tough there. It's not based on, you know, I mean, Memphis is so soulful and Memphis is so rich culturally and it's so much more diverse. Um, you know, I'm, I'm proud to have started my career in Memphis and I'm, you know, always love coming back there and seeing my friends and getting to play for people that I've been playing for, for 20 years, you know? Yeah. And, I, and, and I'm looking forward to seeing you at the, uh, it's June 17th. Is that right? At Crosstown? That's right. Crosstown. Yeah. June 17th. I'm super excited. We'll have the band and, like I said, we're going to record it, so we're going to release a release it as a live record. Um, hopefully, by the end of the year, if we can get finals pressed in time. 
Um, but yeah, that's the plan. I'm super excited to be, it'll be 18 over me live, you know, 25 years later. I've got Meg Tui opening for me too. And she's going to also be playing guitar in the band. She's outstanding. She's been on Broadway playing with the waitress and all kinds of musicals up there. She's super talented, toured with the Weepies playing guitar. Really, really great artist. Cool. I look forward to seeing it. Uh, I don't want to keep holding you for too long, but there are a couple of collaborations you've done that I just have to ask you about. Oh, yeah, please. I got plenty of time. Cool. Well, the first one is going to be, did you have a project with Glenn Phillips from Toad the Wet Sprocket? I did. Me and him and Nielsen had a project called Plover. Um, I was unsure I, of how to pronounce that, so I Plover, didn't say yeah. it. I'll, I'll send you a Dropbox link to that whole record. Please it's, do. Uh, I will. Yeah. It's interesting. It's mostly instrumental. It was a weird little record that we made um, out at the place where Glenn was living at the time. He was living in this, I think he was house sitting for some friends of his in Santa Barbara that had a giant estate. It had like two guest houses on it and this huge yard. And yeah, we had a great time. We had Kurt Yo- Kirk Yokolet, our friend from Nashville, came out and played drums. And, uh, and yeah, it was really fun and totally weird. But I'd love to do it again someday you know because glenn and i are close friends is that out anywhere or is that just i don't think so i actually don't think it is i don't think we ever released it the other one i wanted to ask about is margaret cho oh yeah dude i produced a uh, produced a music record for her american myth she's uh, awesome yeah i'm crazy I've, about margaret i've seen her do stand up a few times oh she's so funny but um but yeah i had a great time doing that you know margaret is always just been such a fan and a friend like she was she was a fan of superhero which is how she and i ended up meeting um we have a mutual friend our friend ian harvey who's also a super talented comedian um and he introduced he and margaret uh are were really close and are really close and i was playing at largo and he brought her out to the show and we just you know she was like i want to make a video for one of your songs and this was for uh i think the girl that killed september we made it, she made the weirdest video of all time for that song understood. And, um, and yes, yeah, she's just been a fan ever since and was in a phase where she was writing songs and singing and, and asked me if I would produce her record. And, um, and so I did. And it was, I mean, I think it's a great record to be honest. I think she's a really cool songwriter. We had a lot of fun doing it. And that thing's been nominated for a Grammy, hasn't it? It was nominated for a Grammy. Yes, we lost to Patton Oswalt. Um, but I was, yeah, that was a, that's really cool. My wife immediately went to my Wikipedia page and changed it to Grammy nominated producer. <laughs> <laughs> she updates my Wikipedia. She's like, <laughs> it's so funny. She, she just like ninja'd that thing. She goes in and updates it from time to time. If it weren't for her, it wouldn't say Grammy nominated producer. But yeah, it's cool to, to have that on the resume. I'm very grateful for that. Well, Garrison, uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I apologize for the technical difficulties we had early on. Oh, but, dude, no But this problem. was a really great conversation. I, I thank you for uh, for taking the time. Well, dude, I really appreciate you too, JD. It means a lot and uh, to be on your podcast. And I'm going to go do a deep dive into the Harding days. Yeah, enjoy that. <laughs> I will do. And I'll see you in Memphis. I'll put you on the guest list plus one. How's that? Okay. Great. Thank you very much. That, that'd be amazing. It. Dude, thanks. Stay in touch and I'll see you in a month or so. All right. We'll see you soon. All right, bro. That's the show. Thank you to Garrison Starr and also John Michael for introducing us. 
Thank you to Arthur with two H's for the opening theme. Thank you to Joey Pegram for the closing theme. Thank you for listening. For music, news, episode archives, and other fine podcasts, visit backtothelight.net. And until next time, take care, y'all. Part of the Back to the Light podcast network at backtothelight.net.